Well, welcome to Abundant Life Church. My name is David and I'm the pastor of groups here at ALC. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. Uh, we've taken a few weeks here and we're hearing the heart uh, of our pastors, what God has laid on their hearts in this season. And, and if you were with us last week, Pastor Bob Tim shared about religion and politics, you know, keeping it to the light stuff. And it really was an incredible message. I invite you to go check it out on our podcast or our YouTube channel if you haven't already. But in this season, I've been spending a lot of my time thinking on and meditating on the Beatitudes. These are a, a list of, of blessed are statements from Jesus. Uh, and you may be very, very familiar with them. You may have memorized them in Sunday school. You may have them hanging on your wall or, or maybe your parents have them hanging on their wall. If you've been around the church for some time, they're familiar. And it's my hope that we can shake up that familiarity a bit this morning and you can see them in a fresh way. And if you haven't been around the church very much, I'm, I'm kind of jealous of you because you get to see the Beatitudes with fresh eyes. And that's something that many of us have to put some effort into to see familiar things in a fresh way. The author and pastor Brian Zond wrote that the Beatitudes are deliberately designed to shock us. If we're not shocked by the Beatitudes, it's only because we've tamed them with a patronizing sentimentality. And being sentimental about Jesus is the religious way of ignoring Jesus. Too often the Beatitudes are set aside into the category of nice things that Jesus said that I don't really understand. Now we don't have time this morning to ex exhaustively look at all of these statements and, and really what they mean, but we do uh, have time to look at the purpose the why of these statements. What is Jesus trying to tell us uh, through the Beatitudes? Uh, and, and if you're taking notes, the, the title of this message is, it shouldn't be this way. You can go ahead and write that down. It shouldn't be this way. And if you're following along in your Bibles, uh, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, just the very beginning there. But before we get to the text, I think it's gonna be helpful to set the scene, uh, just really where we're at in Jesus's life and ministry. Uh, Jesus is on his first tour of the region, of Judea, Samaria, uh, Galilee, and, and he's gathered a large crowd of people because he's been, he's been preaching and gathering disciples and healing people. And along the way, more and more people have followed him to the point that there's just a massive crowd. At the end of Matthew chapter four, it says, news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And with this incredible gathering of people, Jesus takes the opportunity to preach what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. It's in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that Jesus gives his most detailed description of his kingdom. Scholars refer to it as the constitution of the government of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And it all begins with the Beatitudes. You can view them as a preamble or an introduction to this sermon, to this constitution of the government of Jesus. And I wanna remind you that they are, are supposed to shock you. They're deliberately designed to shock us. So let's take a look, Matthew chapter five, verses one through 12. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, these are some bold statements from Jesus. There, there's some uncomfortable statements. And if we're honest, it doesn't quite match the reality or the world that we live in. Be happy about being persecuted. Be very glad. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are, are, are you when, when others revalue you and persecute you. This doesn't quite match the world we live in, but it's not supposed to. They don't match the world we live in because Jesus is describing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and it's something altogether different than the world that we live in. And so to grasp the Beatitudes, we need to have an understanding of, of really two terms. First, blessing. What does it mean to be blessed? And, and the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Well, first, let's talk about blessing. This is one of those nice Christian words that we kind of have a, a generic definition for. Maybe it's, it's good, or maybe it's gift, or maybe it's you just sneezed and there's no other word to say, so God bless you, right? It's, it's these kinds of things that come to mind when we think blessing, uh, but I believe the Beatitudes push us to have a more specific definition. The world around us teaches us uh, that when we do good things, we get good things. When we, when we do bad things, bad things happen to us, that there's kind of this relationship of good and bad. And, and a lot of people in the world would call this karma or a karmic reality, that, that you have what's coming to you, whether it's good or bad. And it can be easy to bring this understanding to our, our reading of the Bible, to our understanding of God. We can imprint it there. And Pastor Bob described this last week as, as eisegesis, it's looking at the text to reaffirm what we already know or what we already believe instead of looking at it to learn something new. And so I wanna look a little bit at the Old Testament and, and, and where do we see instances of God's blessing? And I think you'll find a pattern here. In Genesis 26, God's speaking to one of the patriarchs, Jacob, and he says these words, live here as a foreigner in this land and I will be with you and bless you. In 1 Chronicles, we have the Ark of the Covenant. This was viewed by the Israelites as the very presence of God. It traveled with them in the tabernacle. It was the center of the temple. It was for them the presence of God. And for a while, it was stored at a man's house named Obed-Edom. And during that time, during those three months, it says the Lord blessed his household and everything that he had. And then in Jeremiah 16, as God is speaking to the people of Israel when they are being exiled for breaking their relationship with him, he says, I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people. See, as we read those texts, we realize that blessed from God is not about good gifts. It's about proximity. 
that yes, good things happen to people and that's referred to as, as God's blessing. But more importantly, blessing is always accompanied by the presence of God. That when God is near, we are blessed. When God is near, good things happen. It's not about us doing good things or bad things or neutral things. It's about being near, being in proximity with God. And then we see in the New Testament, when God draws near to us, where there's a new revelation of God's love through Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now we see that God blesses people through his own loving presence. Through his loving presence, we see this in the incarnation, Jesus living amongst us, and then the Holy Spirit, God's very present living presence, living within us. It's an incredible, incredible thing. So when we read the Beatitudes with this in mind, with blessing being the very loving presence of God, it sounds a bit different. God is lovingly near to those who are poor, and realize their need for him. God is lovingly near to those who are mourning, those who are persecuted. And really when we hear it that way, it describes the way that Jesus lived, what we see in the gospels, God lovingly drawing near to those that are hurting and to those that are in need. The author Beth Moore wrote that the Beatitudes in a nutshell are, are blessed are you if you need me. For me, you shall have an all that comes with me. Isn't that beautiful? It's, God, it's Jesus promising himself his loving presence. This is the idea of blessing. But what about the kingdom that Jesus is talking about? I think it's easy to, to kind of brush, brush this off and think of it just as, as heaven and some future reality uh, when we think of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. We think of, of this hope, future hope of heaven. That someday, if you choose to follow Jesus now, someday you will experience a reality, an existence without pain and without suffering where you are comforted. And when we read the Beatitudes in this way, there's no tension. It really doesn't shock us because we can look at those who are poor and those who are persecuted and those who are merciful and think, man, heaven is going to be so good for you someday. Or, of course, in a perfect world, these, these people would be taken care of, but we don't live in a perfect world. That's coming later. But what if we consider the kingdom differently? In Matthew chapter 3, when we hear John the Baptist declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when we look and see in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus send out his disciples and tell them to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea there is in the kingdom is coming someday. So the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is now, it is at hand. Pastor Bruxy Cavey has a great way of illustrating this and I wanna share it with you this morning. And I want you to, to participate with me wherever you're at in your living room or wherever you're watching from. I'm not gonna make you stand up or embarrass yourself. It's just gonna be a simple motion. I want you to, to do this. Just put your forearm horizontally in front of you. Now, I want this to represent our earthly lives in these bodies we currently live in, where your elbow is, your, is the, when you were born, right? The beginning of your life and, and your fingertips is, is the end of your earthly life when your body dies. 
Now for secular humanists, for, for atheists, for those that don't believe that there's a, a spiritual reality, this is it. This is our, our, our reality that, that we live in. But if you have a religious background, if, if you really believe in something beyond yourself, a lot of times it looks like this for a lot of different religions, that, that we have an earthly life and that we have an afterlife. And, and that probably goes beyond your elbow a bit, right? Um, but, but you have this end of your earthly life and the beginning of something else, the beginning of an afterlife. And, and, and some that might be like this, where we, where we have life and then life and then life. But for many, it's this. And I think we can get sucked into this belief as Christians that, that we end our earthly life and then we have the hope of heaven. Then we experience all these good things of Jesus. But, but really what Jesus is inviting us into is something like this. We're somewhere in our earthly life, somewhere in, in these bodies we currently inhabit that we can choose to follow Jesus and we can choose to enter the kingdom of heaven right here. And that in that time, there, there's going to be a, a specific time where our bodies die, right? And we experience the fullness of the kingdom of God beyond that point. But there's this in-between part. There's this in-between part where we have been invited into the kingdom of God, invited into the kingdom of heaven, but we're not experiencing it in, full, uh, in the full sense as of yet. And because we, we live as kingdom people in a world that's still fallen, in a world that's still broken, we live in this constant tension until the full reality of the kingdom comes to fruition. The apostle Paul uh, wrote it like this in Romans chapter eight. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. You see, as people transformed by the loving presence of Jesus in our lives, this blessing from God in our lives, we should be the most prepared to look at the world and say, it shouldn't be this way. And say, I've, I've seen this blessing from Jesus. I've seen a foretaste. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the foretaste of the future glory. And I have this perspective of the broken world that it should not be this way. And with that in mind, let's take another look at the Beatitudes and specifically the people, the groups of people that are, are described here. First is bless, God blesses those who are poor. Now the Greek text includes the word pneuma, and that's why so many translations will say, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's this idea of the spiritually poor in contrast to the spiritually rich. And, and oftentimes we give it this, oh, I'm so poor in spirit or I'm down in the dumps, but that's not really what we're getting to here. It's the, the people who are poor in spiritual things. And Jesus had a lot of clear examples of those who are rich in spiritual things. You had rabbis and, and teachers of the law that had this religion thing, that had these spiritual things figured out. But for us, I want you to picture your family's holiday dinner, your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. The meal's just been finished. Somebody's been cooking all day and it smells so good. <laughs> and then you finally sit down at the table, what you've been waiting for. 
And if you have a church or a religious background, there's usually that awkward pause where everybody realizes at the same time that somebody should pray or somebody should say grace. And the eyes start darting across the room or maybe somebody volunteers or maybe everybody just intuitively knows who it is that should pray. But there's usually that designated prayer, right? It's usually the person that, that everybody knows goes to church or is involved somehow. In my family, it was always my dad. Uh, with our relatives, everybody knew that my dad was the designated prayer. And now that I'm normally the only pastor in the room, uh, that's been bestowed upon me, that I'm usually the designated prayer at those holiday meals. Now, the designated prayer is someone that we might consider to be rich in spirit, to be rich in the spiritual things, uh, that they, they know how to pray. They know how to do the, the churchy stuff. And, the, and that's not good or bad. Like I said, I'm a designated prayer. But the danger here, the danger here is, is having so much confidence in our virtue that we forget our need for Jesus. The spiritually poor are those that don't feel like they have it figured out. They're those that don't feel comfortable praying even when they're alone. To those that don't really know what to do with the Bible. And maybe they don't like all the churchy stuff that they've been told they're supposed to enjoy. They recognize they can't do this on their own. And as the translation that we read today stated, they realize their need for Jesus. The world might say that the, the spiritually poor should keep their distance from church. That if you don't know what you're doing, that's going to be kind of messy or awkward, and that's just kind of weird, so you might want to stay away. And, and I think too often the church has intentionally or unintentionally sent the same message. But can we as kingdom people instead insist that those who are spiritually poor and don't have it figured out are precisely who the kingdom, precisely who the church are made for? God blesses those who mourn. Now, we've talked a lot about loss in this season. It might be a loss of a job. It might be a loss of a loved one or, or your own health. Maybe it's a loss of a, a summer vacation you've been planning on and dreaming of or, or a graduation or a celebration you were hoping to have. And in an individualistic world that says that everyone's problems are their own, can we be kingdom people that take on the pain and the grief of others and make it our purpose to comfort them? to get out of our, our own sense of, man, I don't really have anything to, to grieve. I'm feeling pretty good. But choose to feel the pain and the grief and the loss of others and comfort them in the kingdom way. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. The Greek word here for justice is dikaiosune, dikaiosune. And it literally means the way things ought to be. So it'd be accurate to say that, that those who hunger and thirst for justice are those who look at the world and say, it shouldn't be this way. And I yearn to make it different. You see, we're seeing a massive movement around the world of people who, who hear the stories of black mothers and fathers, mothers and fathers of black children, worried that they won't come home someday. Who, who hear these 911 calls of people concerned that there's a black man in the neighborhood or there's brown kids in the park that might get up to trouble. Who see the continued and persistent discrimination and pain of the black and brown people in our community and are saying, it shouldn't be this way. And I yearn 
for it to be different. I yearn for it to be made right. Can we as kingdom people recognize that Jesus wants to satisfy that hunger and thirst for justice and say, you are closer to my heart than you know. Let's figure out a way to make this world as it ought to be. Let's work for that together. God blesses the humble, the merciful, whose hearts are pure, who work for peace. Man, what does it look like to work for peace? It's a messy and difficult thing. We see the worst of people in polarized situations. We see that now, don't we? And as Pastor Bob shared with us last week, the division, the, the polarization is, is growing worse and worse. The author, Dan White Jr. said that the most powerful yet neglected political act is making meals for enemies. It's not difference that breeds hate, it's distance. Can we as kingdom people show humility when we're speaking to others? Can we show mercy when we're speaking to others? Can, can we approach people with pure hearts that truly have nothing to hide? And rather than aiming to be right, can we aim to make peace in the interactions that we have with people? And making peace doesn't mean silence. It means engaging with love and choosing to listen. And that's not quick. That's not easy. It's slow and it's difficult. It moves at the pace of people. It moves at the pace of relationships. But church, if we are to make peace, we have to slow down. We have to approach people with humility and with mercy and with peace in mind. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. This is the one statement that Jesus actually doubles down on. And he doesn't just double down. He gets more specific. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. It's fairly clear who the persecuted are in this statement. It's kingdom people. It's people who live as if the kingdom of God is at hand because guess what? It is. Who, who look at the world and say it's not as it should be. But who are the persecutors? Who are those that say that this is wrong? Who would mock someone who looks at the world and says it shouldn't be this way? Well, it may just be those who look at the world and say, this is exactly as things should be. Those who, who say the spiritually poor shouldn't feel comfortable in the church. That's not where they belong. Who, who don't recognize the injustices around us, who say the systems and, and the way things are really work for me, and I'm not gonna let them change, and who see comforting others, showing mercy, and making peace as weakness or a waste of time. And so we can really be in two different places where we can recognize that the world isn't as it should be, or we could say it's exactly as it should be. But, but, but the Beatitudes really leave us with two things, an invitation and a challenge. The invitation is to those that read these statements, that read each of these statements and say, oh man, that's me. Oh, I'm there. Oh, that's, that's where I'm at. Those that are unsatisfied with the world as it is. 
because you are most ready to receive the message of Jesus. You are the most ready to feel right at home in the kingdom of God. And, and if you're hearing that invitation and you desire to enter the kingdom of God, it's as simple as praying to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be a part of that work. And then you engage. Then you actually enter into that kingdom work of showing mercy, of comforting those who mourn, of satisfying those who hunger and thirst for justice, coming alongside those who say the world isn't as it should be. Now the challenge is to those who have a hard time seeing themselves in these statements. And if I'm honest, that's, that's me. That's where I'm at. As a pastor, it's so easy to, to go through the motions, to, to do all the things that I know are, are the right things to do spiritually and, and religiously and, and really forget my need for Jesus. That is such a temptation. And because of my background and the community I live in, my sex, the color of my skin, I, I have the privilege of not experiencing, not dealing with, not seeing many of the injustices in our community, in our nation. Both of these things are, are things I need to be conscious of that I don't experience them naturally. I have to, to purpose myself to see the world through Jesus's eyes. And that's the challenge for me. And that's the challenge for you. If, if, if you're with me on that, if you're, if you're in this place as well, it isn't to suddenly find something to mourn about. It isn't suddenly putting ourselves in a position to be persecuted. It's choosing to see the world through Jesus's eyes. Saying, no, it shouldn't be this way. That, that uh, I can be present with those who mourn and I can choose to comfort them. I can choose to put their pain on myself. I can choose to oppose injustices that, that I am not the victim of. I can choose to be a peacemaker in a polarized world and recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's not just for me, it's not just for you. It's not just for people like me and like you. It's for everyone. The author Rachel Held Evans wrote, this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry, because they said yes. And there's always room for more. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for inviting us to your table. Not because of this karmic relationship where we've done all the good things to be invited and to get your blessing, but Lord, because you choose to be lovingly near to us. Lord, and you choose to, to allow people like us into your kingdom to openly invite us to your table here and now. Would we recognize that your kingdom is not just some future reality, but you are at work in the world we currently live in. And Lord, if we feel that tension, if we recognize that the world isn't as it should be, Lord, would we recognize our nearness to your heart and choose to follow you and participate in that kingdom work towards what the world ought to be. 
And Lord, if we are not recognizing that, if, if we're looking at the world and say, I kind of like how it is, or I'm comfortable, Lord, would you challenge us to see through your eyes? Lord, would you challenge us to recognize our need for you, even if we know all the spiritual things? Would you challenge us to see injustices, even when we don't experience injustice, even when we don't experience persecution? Lord, would you challenge us to see and be with the people that you choose to see and be with? And in doing so, would we further your kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen.